want you to turn your Bibles this morning to uh, John chapter 13. This morning we're going to be looking at the power of the transforming love of Christ uh, in and through a story that I think is familiar to most of us. John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean already. You also are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. A messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The theme of this story is the power of the selfless, transforming love of Jesus Christ. I want to work through this story from a couple of angles. First, I want to look at the, the setting of this account. Uh, in, in verse 1, it says, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world. Now, that came up in John chapter 2 when Mary asked Jesus to intervene miraculously at the first wedding, the wedding of Cana. Most of you will remember that story. And in that account, Jesus says to Mary, I can't get involved yet for my hour has not yet come. The God-appointed time for action is not present yet. John chapter 8, that'll come up again. It's the third time in the Gospel of John that Jesus is expressing a consciousness of a timetable and plan of God for his life. Okay, so he's moving through his life, seeking to fulfill the will and purposes of his Father. What we know from verse 1 is that it is just before the Passover festival. Now, if you're familiar with the flow of the book of John overall, you know that from chapter 12 to the end of the book, about half of the book is devoted to the last seven days of Christ's life. 
when you come to chapter 13, you've entered into the last two days of the public life of Christ. So nine chapters are going to be devoted to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The purpose for which he has come. Okay, so that's the, if you will, the flow of the book. So there's close proximity to the time when Jesus talks about he knew that the Father, verse 3, had put everything into his hand, that he had come from the Father and was returning to God. He had come for a purpose. That purpose was to give his life a ransom for many and then to return to his Father. So in the process of this 33-year life of Christ, he knows he has come to the climax or to the point of his passion. Okay? The self-giving of himself for the purpose of paying the price for our sins. So that's what's in his mind, that this ultimate sacrifice on Calvary's cross is now about to become true. It's about to become reality for Jesus. In verse 1, it makes this amazing statement. It says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Some of your translations say this. He loved them to the uttermost or he displayed the full extent of his love. Okay, so whatever's going to happen in John chapter 13 is a little bit of a snapshot or a picture of what Christ is ultimately going to do on the cross. So what he's going to move into in chapter 13 is an illustration through an act of a greater love. So this selfless love leads him to one act. That one act of cleansing points to a greater act of cleansing. Okay, so let's kind of look at what this full extent of his love that is now going to be expressed through an object lesson. Okay, and what is Jesus' purpose? All right, Jesus' purpose, according to Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, is to demonstrate to his followers that he had come to serve them by giving his life as a freedom price for their sin. All right, and giving and paying that freedom price on the part of Jesus Christ would require great and selfless humble sacrifice. Okay, so John 13 becomes a picture of the greater work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Okay, so that's, as you're looking for the connection between John 13, washing the feet of the disciples, and what ultimately Jesus is going to do on the cross, both are acts of selfless love poured out on the benefit of his people. One is an act that you and I can emulate. The other one I can't emulate. Okay, I, I can't give my life for your sin, but I can selflessly serve you like Christ does. And so that's how John chapter 13 ties in to this clear aim of Christ. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, the story is told in verse 2 and following. It says the evening meal was in progress. So they're sitting around this table. Typically, the reclining position would be on the left elbow because most people in the ancient times thought you had to be right-handed. Okay, So they would recline on the, on, the, on, the, on the left elbow and eat with the right hand, feet back towards the hinder part of the person. Why? Well, because feet were typically in the ancient world quite filthy and in need of cleansing. The normative thing, if you came into someone's house for a meal, was that the owner of the house, the one who was the host, would direct a servant to wash the feet of the guest. For some reason in this account, that customary approach does not occur. Okay, so they're seated at the table, they're into the evening, the meal is being served, dinner is underway, 
And the Bible tells us in parenthetically that the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus is aware of that because this betrayal by Judas would set into motion the final day of the life of Christ prior to his crucifixion. And Jesus is fully aware of that. All right. Now, this customary washing of the feet was a task that was reserved for the most menial or lowly of slaves. Often in Jewish culture, it was written that a Jewish slave could not be responsible for wiping and washing the feet of people. The task was considered beneath someone who was Jewish. So they would have Gentile slaves who would participate in that task because it was considered to be demeaning, uh, humbling, all right? The kind of tearing away of any sense of of proper self-esteem. Peers typically would not do this. And so what do you have? You have a table surrounded by Jesus... His 12 disciples, everyone with 30 feet, the customary washing doesn't take place, and they're well into the time of the meal. We know from the text that that a pitcher and towel are there, and the pitcher and the towel serve as a silent indictment of everyone there. No one is willing to serve others in this selfless sort of way. And you ask yourself this question, why such reluctance? Why wouldn't any of the disciples at least take up the basin and towel and wash the feet of Christ, the Master? And after watching the life of Christ, why wouldn't they take responsibility for each other to wash one another's feet? He asked the question, why is this reluctance present? I think the answer is found back in Luke chapter 22. While the disciples of Jesus were on their way to the meal, the Last Supper, what was the topic of discussion? Well, they discussed among themselves who was greatest. Right? Enough said, right? So the discussion is, who's, who's going to be at the right hand and left hand of the Father when we get into the kingdom? Who, who really is better amongst this group? Folks, I want to tell you this. Whenever there is that kind of posturing in our hearts, which all of us are capable of, it will always stifle and kill Christ-like service. Right, so the disciples, it's, it is not on their mind to wash one another's feet, let alone to work around the whole room and wash everyone's feet. So the basin and towel sit unaffected, which leads us, I think, to the heart of the story. And I want to look at just three ideas here, the example of Christ's love, the objects of Christ's love, and then the aim of Christ's love as demonstrated in this account. First of all, let's look at this example of love. Now, verse 1 has told us that this example of love is a love that is to the uttermost. It is the full extent of the love of Christ that is going to be put in, on display in this act that point for, points forward to a greater act of the love of Christ. So the example of love, verse 4. The Bible says, so he, Jesus, got up from the meal. Now, what thought just ran through his mind? That he had come from the Father He was going to fulfill the purpose of the Father in crucifixion, and then he was going to go to the Father. That's the thought that is just, verse 3, run through the mind of Christ. He has full knowledge that one of the people there is going to betray him, and he he will predict that another one of them will deny him. And so we find this example of love. What does Jesus do? And I want you to notice that there are details in this account that are fundamentally and powerfully revealing of the heart of Christ. Here's what the text says. He got up, 
from the meal. And, and if you were the disciples and you see Jesus stirring, he, he's pushing himself up from the reclining position, what would run through your mind? Right? Two words. Uh-oh. Right? Because, and, and then, as he get, maybe he's just going to address the group of disciples. He's going to explain something to them. But he doesn't speak a word. But he does explain something to them. As their master and Lord, he takes off the outer robe, the, the robe of honor, the robe of a rabbi. He takes this linen towel, this lengthy linen towel, ties it around his waist with a piece extending towards the ground, takes the bowl and the basin, and one by one begins to wash the feet of the disciples. An example of what? Of unbelievable, selfless, humble love. A love that strikes the disciples. A love that I would think in many ways deeply convicted them. All of them are silent. 11 out of 12 cannot bring themselves to utter a word. They are completely taken back by what is happening. Why? This was the task of the lowly. This is beneath. This is not appropriate. And in very candid and typical fashion, who speaks up? Peter. <laughs> the guy that always has an explanation for what's going on. Or who is always ready to declare the appropriateness or inappropriateness of certain actions. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is becoming a servant. And if you want to kind of grasp this in the flow of the life of Christ, he is doing what? He is descending from the throne of heaven to the place of the cross. The last thing that he does prior to moving towards the cross is he takes upon himself, according to Philippians chapter 2, the form of a bond slave. Utter, abject, total humility. A complete self-giving for others. And that's the place that Jesus arrives at on this day. And it is in that frame of mind that the Savior moves towards his greatest sacrifice. Now, what was Jesus doing here? Is Jesus acting like a slave? Or is he being a slave? Interesting thought, huh? Is he simply giving an object lesson? Or is it really who God has become? Is it just, is it just a play act? Or is it true? And I think Philippians 2 would argue that it is true. He took on human form, and then he went lower than that. He took on the form of a bond slave. What kind of slave? The lowest of slaves who would wash the filth of life off the feet of people that came into the house and then go back into the background. And Jesus Christ is an example of love to the uttermost, not only in his death on the cross, but in the washing of the disciples' feet. A powerful picture of sacrifice and love. The objects of Christ's love, the disciples. Now, if you've done any study of the New Testament and looked at, at the nature of the disciples that surrounded Jesus, the people that he collected together, you know that this is not a glorious group of people. This is not a noble selection that Jesus had done. He selected all kinds of people. 
And, and in the mix, we find a focus in this context on two. And the purpose of focusing on the two is to show us the kind of people that Jesus is willing to serve. Okay, the first one that he washes the feet of, from what, everything we can tell here early on, is the feet of Judas, who he knows is going to betray him. Look down in verse 11. Verse 11 says, He knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he could say, Not every one of you, after having your feet washed, is clean. He knew something of the evil intention on the heart of Judas. And yet, what does he do? He doesn't scold him. He doesn't take his position of of authority and condemn him. He expresses to him a deep, unfathomable, selfless love. Hidden in plain view is Judas. His intentions clearly known by Christ. You might ask yourself, okay, what principle emerges here? What principle becomes clear here? And I think we could say something like this. The sin of others does not exempt us from selfless service to them. You see, we tend to look at our service of others and think, is this person deserving of the kind of love that I'm going to give? And this is often how it works in our homes, right? If this person is deserving of my love and affection, then I give it to them. But I can't find in the life of Christ him loving people that deserve it. None of us do. We all sin and fall short. What does he do? He moves in the direction of willful sinners with a picture of sacrifice and then with an act of sacrifice through the cross. He loves a man who is going to utterly and completely betray him. The sin of Judas does not exempt Jesus from humble, sacrificial service and love to him. Let that picture sink in. And then we come to the man who can't take it. He just, this whole scene is just against all sensibilities for Peter, right? He's watching what happened. It's just just building up inside of him. And when Jesus comes to the feet of Peter and prepares to watch them, Peter, he he just can't take it. And he he gives this strong expression, verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, and I'll give you this in the original language, Lord, you, my feet, are going to wash. The you and the my are two words or pronouns that are put beside each other in the original language to give an emphasis. You, my, nope. He just, he's like, puts up a stop sign. Okay, everybody else is receiving the love of Christ. Everybody else is receiving the service. What 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 does Peter say? No, I'm, I'm better than all of them. This is beneath dignity. This is not appropriate. And so to Peter contest the love of Christ. Indignantly, emphatically, he argues for what is socially appropriate. Well, Peter, what would be socially appropriate? In a house where it is customary for feet to be washed, there is a master present, a Lord present, and no one washes feet. You know what Jesus does? He does the appropriate thing. Since no one else would assume the posture of a servant, guess who does? The Lord and the master. And when he comes to wash the feet of Peter, what does Peter say? Not mine. Jesus gives him a strong rebuke. He says, Peter, you do not realize now what I am doing. Peter, you're acting in ignorance of what this points to. And if you deny my selfless love to you in this, you have no part in me. 
Which points to what? It points to the redemption that Jesus is going to purchase, accomplish, and complete on the cross. What is he saying to Peter? Peter, if you don't let me serve you, I can't help you. What's going on? Peter's he's, he's filled with a pride, a sense of sensibility and appropriate. He just, he, Unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part in me. And the word for part here speaks about an inheritance in the future with Christ. What is Jesus saying? Peter, if you don't let me humble myself and serve you, you have no hope of the future with me, which we know Peter desperately wanted. He had experienced the power of Christ. He had heard talk about the kingdom. And you know what he wanted? He wanted to be part of the kingdom of God. But he thought he was ready for it. Apart from the work of Christ. And Jesus is saying, Peter, you need my external cleansing. You need my redemption. Or you have no part with me. I love the response of Peter. Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Now, what is Peter asking for in those statements? Probably, it is an expression that relates to, I want a full and complete renovation of my life. Now, what a, what a move. What a powerful statement from Christ. What a repentance and adjustment on the part of Peter and an embrace of something that is absolutely glorious and wonderful. Peter is broken. In verse 10, Jesus answered and said, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you. Now, the idea is something like this. Following the full cleansing of redemption, what do we need? We need maintenance in our walk with God, don't we? Our hearts tend to get caught up in the sinfulness of life. Uh, the person that goes to a meal like this, They've typically taken a bath, they fully cleanse themselves, they put on their sandals, which don't keep out all dirt, they've walked to the person's house for the meal, and when they get there, what's happened? Their entirely clean body is still largely clean, but there is dirt on them. And so as they would come into the meal, the custom would be to not do a full body wash, but a washing of the feet. And that maintenance kept them wholly clean. It becomes, I think, a picture of the salvation that God gives us through Jesus, but then of the sanctification that he gives us as we work our way through life. The truth is that in the context of our homes' lives, which we've been talking about a lot recently, what happens? Dirt builds up at times. We need the cleansing power of Christ while we live under the bigger picture of the full sacrifice of Christ, right? His full love motivates our love. His maintenance, his sanctification of us is essential to us living out the full picture of what all of this means in our lives. So what's the picture when he washes the feet of Judas, when he washes the feet of Peter, when he washes the feet of disciples who have been arguing along the way, who's really better? All right, what's the, what's the picture? And I think this, the picture is something like this. This foot washing anticipated a greater cleansing so that what does God want us to do he doesn't want us to get caught up in the idea of washing feet okay feet aren't pretty they're kind of disgusting and in the ancient world they were filthy why everything that you didn't want in the house got thrown out in the streets you go to third world countries today most people that come home don't keep the shoes that they walked in or over there why because they're they're filthy with things that were on the street and what's on the street is not good or lovely it's filthy and so you discard that 
the foot washing that Jesus does for his disciples here anticipates a greater cleansing and redemption that Jesus is going to bring through the ultimate picture of self-sacrifice. So get the connection. The foot washing, a picture of humble, selfless service for others. The cross is what? It's an amplification or magnification of that picture of selfless love that the disciples and that Peter so desperately needed. The last thought that then comes to mind is this. What is the aim and impact of this story, of this illustration, of this picture that Jesus gives to the disciples? Verse 12 says this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned. And I just, I love this next statement. He returned to what? His place. What was Jesus' place at the table? The seat of honor. So he, he does this act of selfless love, and then what does he do? He returns to and assumes the position that is rightfully his. And out of that position, he speaks to them about what he has already said to them through the act of selfless love. So this act of Christ has an aim. It has a purpose. Verse 12, after he returns to his place, he says to them, do you understand what I have done for you? Do you, do you grasp? Can you get your arms around this inappropriate, powerful analogy? Do you see what I did for you? Jesus' love in this text is being what? Verse 1, the full display, loving them to the uttermost, to the very end. He washes the defeat of rebels before he dies and sheds his blood for their redemption on Calvary's cross. Jesus' love in this text is manifested. It is made clear for us in selfless service. Folks, if you want to make Jesus clear to the world around you, here's what you need to do. Pour yourself into humbling, selfless service. Don't be concerned with what's appropriate to your stature and status in life. Jesus put it all aside. Put on the robe of a servant and served people that were utterly undeserving of it. Now, here's, here's the way he says it in verse 14. He says, now that I, your Lord and teacher. So what has Jesus done? He has acted as a servant knowing that who is he? He is the teacher and Lord. He is the king of kings. He is the ultimate supreme authority. What has he done? He moved from that place of exaltation to the place of a servant. Now, is Jesus asking the disciples to take such a gigantic step? Is he saying, move from your high position and go to the low position? That's not even what he's asking. What is he asking? He's asking sinners to love sinners. He's asking us to love people just like us, not to come down from our throne and serve others. You and I don't even have things like that to give up. Any, nothing like what Jesus had. So he's calling his disciples to a, a love for one another, to a mutual expression of selfless sacrifice and humility while expressing a clear picture that they will never have to give up anything like his or what he gave up. The love of Christ is the love of a master to a servant. Peter found that love to be shocking 
and transform us. And folks, here's what I would urge upon you this morning. It is not until the love of Christ shocks you that it will save you. It's not till it, it draws you to your knees like Peter does and says, Lord, wash every bit of me. I give up all of my self-righteousness. I confess that I argued about whether I was greatest. I give up all of that. I am stunned by your selfless love. This is just the wash. This is just taking on the, the form of a servant. This is not even the cross. And what happens to Peter? He is undone. Why? He wants to have a part with Christ. And that thought humbles him and causes him to cry out and say, Jesus, please cleanse all of me. Utterly and completely transform my life. Folks, here's what I think we need to do at times. We need to meditate on the love of Christ. We need to meditate on the selfless nature of Christ's sacrifice. Let it sink in. Let the utter inappropriateness of the Son of God on the cross settle in. But know that it's true. Know that He came from heaven to earth and from the earth to the cross to pay the price for your sin. And know that as he does that, he is indeed Lord and Master pouring himself out for our redemption and forgiveness. Let it shock you so that it can change you. And Jesus then in verse 15 moves to this thought. He says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. All right, now what is that? That's the aim of this story. It's, the, it's where this, this, this illustration, this selfless service of Christ, it's where it's moving. What does it aim to do? It aims to challenge our self-centeredness. He wants to break off the shackles of, of selfishness and self-centeredness that tend to be part of our lives. What does he want us to do? He wants to free us. You see, folks, do you understand this? When Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. What does it say? It says that he is utterly free. From what? From, from having to do things that are socially appropriate. From having to be a certain way, to maintain a, 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 a certain uh, way that people look at you. And a lot of times that's how we're living in our relationships, right? We want to be seen in a certain way. And Jesus is saying, I can free you from that. I can give you a righteousness that you can't take credit for. And when I humble you with that kind of righteousness, it will free you to live a life of selfless love. Let the love of Christ shock you in his selfless sacrifice. King of kings, serving. And let, then let it free you from having to be somebody so that you can be a servant of the king of kings. See, I believe the purpose of this event was to confront the disciples directly on the basis of the discussion they had coming to the meal. Who is greatest? You know what Jesus is saying? It doesn't matter. The way that we capture the attention of the world around us is by having relationships that are deeply affected by the selfless sacrifice of Christ that free us from having to be somebody and that free us to become nobody like Jesus did, and to find joy in that condescension. Because that condescension, isn't it true that the cross of Christ is the lowest point in his life? It is even death. It's the way Paul says, right? He humbled himself. He took upon the form of a man. As a man, he became a servant, and then he humbles himself even to death, death on a cross. You know what we love most about Christ? The cross. 
You know what we will exalt throughout eternity? The cross. Why? It frees us from ourselves. It frees us from having to be something other than a servant. And when we start to live like that, here's what Jesus says later in the same chapter, John 13, 34, and 35. He says, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know where evangelism begins? Here. It begins in the selfless acts of love that are what the church is to be all about. Not only when we're together loving each other and serving each other, giving ourselves, that captures the attention of the world. But when we go out of here not needing to be somebody because we know who we are in Christ, we are utterly secure apart from our works and efforts. He has redeemed us through His selfless love and sacrifice. John 7, or verse 17 ends the text by saying, now that you know these things, here, you will be blessed if you do them. And Peter will later interpret this by something like this. He says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And what will he do? He will lift you up. You see, folks, servants historically never thought about escaping their position, ever. It didn't happen. But Jesus Christ is what? He's like the great emancipator. He is the one who greatly and powerfully reverses the roles of life. He takes servants and makes them sons of God. He gives us a part with God, an inheritance with Him that is glorious and beautiful forever. God, Peter says, helps the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And when we become people who say, you know what, I, I, I'm going to get over trying to be somebody. And I'm going to start to serve God like He wants me to. I'm going to start to become a foot washer in my community. Doesn't mean go out and get a basin and towel, sit by the road, wait for people to walk by and say, hey, can I? You'll probably get arrested all right, if you try to do something like that. But try to find ways to serve people. Mow someone's grass. Help a single mom. Help your wife clean the kitchen. Pray daily for a friend in need. Pay your boss a compliment, even if it's undeserved. Visit an elderly person in need. Serve in the nursery. Help in setup. Show hospitality at your home. Babysit for someone so that they can have time to go and be with their mate. There are countless ways that we can give up our identity and take on this new identity that looks an awful lot like Jesus. And when we do, a watching world is going to say, there's something different about those people. They're the children of God. They have been freed to serve through the work of Jesus Christ. Paul calls us to look at the selfless humility and love of Jesus so that that example will begin to saturate, permeate, and transform our lives for His glory. If you're here this morning, you're going to say, Pastor Tim, the picture of Christ is attractive. But I don't know if I have a part with Him. I don't know if I have a future in Him. 
Here's what I want you to know. This picture of washing the feet of his disciples selflessly points to a greater picture of selfless love on the cross where he bears the price for your sin and offers you a gift of eternal love and sacrifice through his selfless work on the cross. He pays the price for your sin and offers you the hope of eternal life. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?